1 Samuel. And uh, if we were reading the Greek Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament, it'd be the books of the kingdom. So you'd be in the first book of the kingdom because that's ultimately what the book is about. It's God's story of his people having him raise up his prophet to point them toward the kind of king that he would have them have. And it's a, it's a saga. You have major Old Testament individuals that you may know. You have Samuel, you have Saul, you have David. We are going to enter into what I just think is one of the most glorious books in all of the Bible. Um, I was running this morning listening to a podcast and at the very end of the podcast, here's what surprised me. Uh, the narrator said this. He said, if you're a pastor, which I've never heard that in this podcast I particularly listen to, but if you're a pastor, what story are you telling and what vision are you putting in front of the people of God? That was the question. And I just need to convey to you with all my heart, this is the story it's the big whole gospel story, but the story through 1 Samuel may be a story that I've just longed to walk through with you and for God's word to be just as real and potent and beautiful as it, as it is. Um, I feel like in, in the last month, as Pastor Bill and AJ have preached, almost the entirety of August, I've just been able to study more and I've got f memories and teaching illustrations just flooding me. You may or may not know this, but the times I've been to India to do preaching workshops, two of the three times I've been to India, this is the book I was asked to go be an instructor on. And so when I say the, the name Eli, you know what I hear in my head? I hear a bunch of beautiful Indian pastors who were putting their life on the line to follow Jesus the King, calling him Eli. And I would say Eli, and they would say, no, Eli. <laughs> this is a book that we deeply need to navigate across all time, across all cultures, and I thank God that we get to enter into it. We'll be in it for basically from now till probably about spring break, February, March time, time period. And should you miss a week, I do want to encourage you. This is a very tightly woven narrative, and I want to encourage you to listen, keep up with us, and study that God would use his word. And so I'm going to say a prayer, and then we'll enter into it together. Father, as we turn to your word, we know that it does not ever fail to accomplish the purpose for which you sent it. Grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord lives forever. And we ask that as we look at this new part of the Old Testament, which is a part of the single story of redemption, you'd grow us and you'd use it and you'd show us why it's important for us in this time to study. Lord, thank you for the privilege we have to have your word in front of us, your Holy Spirit illuminating it to us, and your Son being the focal point of it for our rescue. Grow us, we pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. So in our house, uh, we will sometimes play hide-and-seek, which I guess the more sophisticated version of that game for older kids is called sardines or something. But it's basically hide-and-seek, right? And our four-year-old Quaid loves to play with the big kids. And so whenever Quaid's hiding, you know how it is. We can all see his rear end sticking up from wherever he's at. We can hear him giggling. But we always say, Quaid, where are you? 
Like, I can't see you. I can't find you. You got to give me a hint. It's the greatest. It's obvious where Quaid is, but Quaid, we need you to give us a hint. Here we are in the opening chapter of this story, and I will tell you, if you're a student of the scriptures or you understand the narrative is always pointing us to Jesus, it's pretty obvious where the story's going to go. But as I ask you to stand in a moment, we'll read chapter one. Look for a hint, maybe more than one, of where this narrative is going to take us and where we need to go. Because I think there's at least an obvious hint or two of something way bigger than the story that we're going to look at. And so let me ask you to stand if you would. And I'm going to read the verse 20 verses of 1 Samuel chapter 1. This is God's word. There was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuth, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, the name of the other, Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they'd eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now, Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you've made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. This is the word of God. You may be seated. This is one sermon, maybe a series that I just 
I hope, I hope we can make sense of things and that I don't bounce around like a ping pong ball in my words and my mind because there's so much here. I'll probably be more inclined to just scrap the notes more frequently in this series than others just because of the vastness. And so what I'd like you to see straight away and where we're going to go this morning is that this story starts with a narrative of deep need for one person, and her name is Hannah. And it is connected to the introduction of a narrative of the deep need for all of God's people. So you have a small story about one person, and you have a big story about the people of God that are interwoven from the beginning. And I want to do those two things in tandem all morning long here. Think of large, big, global cultural things that we are aware of in our time right now. Don't go individual, just think big. So we've said it over recent weeks in our prayer time as well. Think of of what's going on in Afghanistan. Think of of our geopolitical construct and and, and government competence and, and the dialogue that's going on in that whole realm. Think with me about the evil and persecution that is happening in parts of the world where we are not even there. Think with me about the earthquake in Haiti. Think with me about the suffering of of Hurricane Ida and how it's wrecked different places so differently. Parts where we used to live in the Northeast when we were church planting. I mean, just highways I would drive down, I saw them underwater. The number of people that have had everything change in an instant, lives lost. Think with me about the revolutions going on around our culture with, with regard to sexuality. Think about the overt things that are not surprising anymore. Think with me very obviously about what we sent you an email about this week, about the coronavirus, about COVID-19, about public health, about people being sick and dying, about anxiety and the divisiveness in our culture and everybody either dropping it and saying, I'm done, or everybody talking about it with megaphones. Just think with me about all the global stuff. Now, none of the individual things that you and I are going through can be divorced from those things. We can try, but the personal is always interwoven with the global, if you will. The personal is always interwoven with with the cultural. The small is with the big. So let me bring up some personal things. What are your work obligations right now? What are your stresses that are your personal stress based on your calendar and your need. As I help some nonprofits in the housing realm, I got an email this week from a community health worker saying, hey, the patients I work with are uninsured and they're below poverty level. I'm working with a patient in dire need of home repairs in a different state, not here in Johnson City. But I realized that on that email train, somehow Jim Powell got that email, but there were government, state and federal, as well as private foundations all on one email. There is a individual who had their story be passed down to others. And if you study housing statistics, housing is upward of 40% of a person's social determinant of health. If you just want to use data. Of all the different variables in life, a person's home being warm, safe, and dry, children, grandparents, whoever, is a critical part of their story. So no matter what's going on in the world, what's a person's home situation? But we can say that about the brick and mortar of their house. But how about the home being something far more than just the walls and the roof? I had 
a meeting connected with a friend two weeks ago who I've not seen for 18 years. We were in seminary together. This brother is no longer in ministry. He's no longer with the wife who Corey and I used to cook out and spend time with. I used to run with him in Chicago. He's not living with his children. He's actually not with his second wife or his additional children that I didn't know. I said to him, I said, hey, buddy, at this point in your story, we've not seen each other in so long. What's your dominant emotion? He said, is pain an emotion? And there was silence. It doesn't matter what's going on in the world. Here I was with a friend and he would say, my dominant emotion is pain. Of all the children God's given me, one wants to talk to me right now. So many personal things. I mean, we, if you're a student, I mean, peer pressure, sexual temptation, this is for all of us actually, but then there's guilt. Or if you're married, marital strain and selfishness and distrust. But there's worse personal things in the world. What I mean by worse is things that grieve for a lifetime. Think with me about the sorrows of child abuse, sexual or physical. I read the preface to Dan Allender's book, The Wounded Heart. It's a subtitled book, Hope for Abuse Victims of Childhood Sexual, excuse me, Adult Victims of Childhood Sexual Abuse. And here's his intro. He said, my eight-year-old daughter knows that her daddy's a counselor. And when she was eight, she asked me, this is a long time ago, so she's not eight anymore, but she said, at eight years old, she asked me, daddy, why are you so interested in sexual abuse? Thankfully, before I could answer, he wrote, because she was eight, she asked me another question. Daddy, do abused people have walls in their heart to keep them from being happy? And will they have less bricks in their walls when they get done reading your book? He said, I wept. Just think with me of personal damage that is never disconnected from global pain. As a preacher, lately I feel like I don't have the strength or the wisdom to address those two layers as I ought, the individual and the cultural. Never felt more pressure. Certainly when we lived in the Northeast, people were a little bit more direct than you all are, but never felt more pressure. Maybe it's just my own internal pressure. Preach on this with this angle, expose that. But if you expose that, don't forget this side. And even if people aren't asking me that, I just feel this weight. If I go deep with individual application, what of the cultural? But if we stick in the cultural, but what about the individual? It's layered. It's all interwoven. And that's preaching and teaching, right? Well, what about being a shepherd and pastoring and you try to check in on this family situation you know about over here? So we do. But while you're doing that, you get hit, hit by smoke from a fire over there. And then as you think about this family and that family, you realize, wait a second, those are individual stories. But I think I see a pattern here of a cultural issue that's being played out in two different homes in two different ways. There's parallels, though. So there you have the individual interwoven with the cultural, and it feels impossible in ministry to keep up with the layers. I know this is a long introduction, but track with me here. Of course, it's hard to keep up with the layers. I've got six children. I can't keep up with the layers in my own home. Right? So picture my life for a second. I spend time with my son, Nate. He's 14. We try to go deep. I want to pull out his emotions. I want to walk with him through temptations and his calling to be a young man. And then I blink twice and realize, Aurea, she's 11. She's got all these preteen emotions and hormones, and she needs a biblical understanding of beauty and what wisdom is. And then as I'm talking to Aurea, I fixate on that. And then I think, well, what about Maggie, my high school senior? 
She's got all these adult realities. She sees the same things we see, and she's trying to make some major life decisions. How do I enter in with her? And as I'm talking through with Maggie, Pete comes up and says, Dad, can we play pickleball? Yes, Pete, we need to play pickleball, but I can't right now. Dad, can I have some candy? No, Pete, you can't have candy. Not right now. But Pete, I see you want time together. And then as I'm talking to Pete, we hear FaceTime ring, and it's on mommy's phone, and people jump up and say, it's Lena. How's Lena doing? How's her new roommate? What is she going through in her sophomore year of college? What questions does she have? How will we enter into that? And then while we're watching the video, I go, where's Quaid? Anybody seen Quaid? And then he's in my arms. Oh, hi, buddy. And then I look at my wife and I say, are you holding? Did I forget any children? I don't think so. I look at Corey and I realize, are we even connected as husband and wife? Have we talked? What's she going through? All of our personal stories interwoven, and that's not even the half of it. Why? Because every one of our individuals in our nuclear home are in the same world with big cultural realities, and we're all navigating the global things separately yet together. We had a family meeting this week just with the teenagers in our house to talk through what is your feeling? What are your thoughts? Are you alone in it? Let's talk. You can't do the individual without the global. We need to understand that in our home and in your home, you have anti-social media. You have, and somebody called it that this week. I'm going to use that forever. You have selfishness, the serve me culture. You have certainly disease and you have sickness and death, but we also have shaming and censoring in our culture. And we have suffering from natural disasters and we've got the future security that they, they hear about and they think about. And then we have to wrap all that up and talk about God's sovereignty. And what about our calling to be evangelists? How do I talk to my friends who are feeling guilt and shame because of drugs or sex or alcohol? What do I say there? Why did God raise me up in their life? Do you feel what I'm trying to help you feel a little bit? This is why 1 Samuel. This is why. And what I love about this first chapter is the Bible starts with one individual. Her name is Hannah. Her name means favored of God, favored one. And it's one person. And yet in this first story, her barrenness and personal bankruptcy is going to be interwoven with the barrenness and bankruptcy of the people of God, the personal and the global. That was a long introduction, but track with me here. Let's look at the very beginning of this book. In verses 1 to 8, it starts with this scene of a personal and family devotion and distress. This woman, Hannah, you could say in one sense, she had everything that a Israelite woman, 1000 BC or so, could ever have wanted. She had a husband who loved her. We read that twice in the first eight verses. She had some measure of comfort. In other words, we know that Elkanah in verse 24, which we'll look at next week, when he goes back to offer a sacrifice for his family, we read that he either offered a three-year-old bull for his sacrifice or he offered three bulls. Either way, they have wealth. So she's loved by her husband. She's got a comfortable life. And it's not just that her husband is, is a guy who loves her. We read in verse 3 that he's a faithful, faithful man. He leads his family every year to give their sacrifices and their offerings at Shiloh. In one sense, she has what she could want. She's been favored. 
And yet we know the story tells us very quickly she's still deeply in want. Yes, she had Elkanah, this wonderful man, but she only had Elkanah. We know that she is barren. The Lord has closed her womb. But it's not just that she only had her husband and wished for a child and a son at that. There was the other wife. You may have seen in the ESV, it says that she was the rival. It's actually a technical term in some extant documents outside the Bible that describes Penina as the rival wife. We know that while not God's ideal, polygamy was often pursued because of the trial of infertility. The rival wife was often there to produce an heir when the first wife could not. And there's no commentary on that in this book. But this is a broken woman. And I want you to picture the way the story's told here. Every year, her family would take a trip to Shiloh to worship. Anybody here have the dreaded annual family vacation? Where you know all the issues with all the same relationships are going to rear their ugly head and it's just like repeat. You know you do. I've talked to some of you about it and we shouldn't laugh because it's awful. This is the trip for Hannah. It's like the scriptures point it very obviously. Every year on this trip, Elkanah would show favoritism to his barren wife, Hannah. Right? We read that he would give the, the portion to Panina and all her children. See, so he says, like, all her sons and daughters. And I read, read, listened to a friend preach on this this week. And he's like, you have to picture on the way to worship, like, Panina's piling her kids in the stretch van. And the other wife, Hannah, is showing up in, like, a fiat. It was just obvious. But Elkanah loved Hannah. And so we read that he gave her the double portion of the offering. You could say he's compensating. He's trying to minister to her. He loves her. And Panina would see this. And so Panina would respond in jealousy. And it's just overtly described in the text. She would just provoke her. You can picture it. Hannah, what do you have to offer the Lord this year? Oh, I'm sorry. I forgot. He hasn't answered your one request. Do you think God cares for you, Hannah? I get the sense that Panina's kids, if this is Panina, their mama, they're probably getting involved in it too a little bit. It's just pain. You ever had anybody taunt you on the way to worship? I've gotten the bad text or the bad email right on the way to worship, and it's just awful. They're on the way to worship, and this woman's identity and trust in the God she's going to worship is being assaulted by the rival wife. Elkanah then, though, would see his wife break down in utter misery. We see how much she broke. Every year it said she would cry, she'd weep, and then she wouldn't eat. She wouldn't be able to eat. So Elkanah would see this. And then he'd try to comfort her and husbands in the room. I don't think Elkanah is the best example here of how to comfort your wife. Right? I mean, she's had real pain. It's not the greatest idea to look at the wife that God gave you and said, I, I don't fully know why you're so upset. But I want to let you know something. No matter what happens in your life, you're married to me. That's what he says. So you feel her, her sensing his disappointment. You feel her sorrow. And then in verse 7, it's just emphatic. This went on year by year. How do you think a domestic conflict like this is pointing us to the kingdom of God? You ever ask that question about your own home? 
How is my family's struggle and conflict a part of the revelation and the unfolding of God's redemptive kingdom? I don't understand. Well, I think it's pretty obvious in this text we're supposed to see it. This conflict drove Hannah to God and the way of his kingdom. Okay? She says in her prayer in verse 11, O Lord of hosts, look on my affliction. Please remember me. Don't forget me. Do you know where those words come from? Those are not original with Hannah. That is very close to verbatim Exodus chapter 3, verse 7, Exodus chapter 4, when God, talking to Moses, and Moses says, how do they know that it's you? And God says, I've looked, tell them, I've looked on their affliction. These are the words of redemptive history that Hannah layers her life into. But more than that, one of the things we see in the conflict in this story is we're seeing a bigger description of how God works in redemptive history. There's a pattern throughout redemptive history of God using barren women and giving them a child at his chosen time who are going to be key figures in his promise of redemption unfolding. So go back to Abraham and Sarah. Sarah is barren. God made a promise to Abraham. How's it possibly going to be? This is not possible. This is not possible. What also happened in that story in Genesis? Hagar was the rival wife. Right? And so we see that, and this is different than the infertility that I know that we feel pain in this room, but understand, I'm giving you an illustration of the way God's promise of his chosen Messiah was going to come. It's a similar narrative as what we have right here. And so it wasn't just Sarah who then birthed Isaac. It was then Rebecca who was barren before she was able to birth Jacob. And then it was Rachel while Leah could have children who was buried and eventually had Joseph. And this is the line of Jesus. But in this moment, for Hannah, yes, she's in the middle of that kingdom, but all she feels is her barrenness and her pain. And we need to go there. And we need to see how horribly hard it is. And so I recognize that I've scratched some scabs by the introduction as well as by this narrative in this story, but track with me about what God does and how he's at work. But we're not even to the bottom of the horror of the pain for Hannah. It's even worse than this because her individual pain is interwoven with a bigger crisis in Israel. And so starting in verse 9, your outline point kind of shows those words aren't necessarily perfect, but basically there's a bigger cultural and global problem after the meal, verse 9, Hannah, she takes her exit because she can't take it anymore. She can't take Panina's comments anymore. And I think this woman, I picture her looking up and seeing the disappointment on Elkanah's face. She can't take her husband's disappointment anymore. She knows how much he loves her. And she does what she's done every year. She just says, I'm done. She gets up, she's not eaten, and she leaves and she goes to the temple. She goes to the only place she knows to go. She goes to pray. The word there, it says temple, but do know it's more like a probably more permanent tabernacle structure because the temple temple is not going to be till after David and Solomon's temple hasn't even been built yet. So just know that. And when she's in the temple, she just pours it all out. She's weeping bitterly. Psalm 6 verse 8 says that God hears the sound of our weeping and Hannah knows God hears her. And she mumbles this vow. Very important. She's not bargaining with God. 
She makes a promise to God, Lord of hosts, if you would give me a son, I'll give him back to you all the days of his life. No razor shall touch his head. That is the Nazarite vow. A Nazarite vow would be for a person's life having particular devotion to the service of God. And she says, my son's whole life, I will give him to you. And if I could pause for a second and have that be instructive to us in our child-centric, often child-worshipping, helicopter, lawn-mowing, whatever it is, culture we live in. Parents, we don't have a mother say, Lord, give me a child and I'll keep him and I'll protect him. We have a mother say, Lord, if it's your will to give me a child, I will give him back to you. Look what happens next. This broken woman makes a vow. She's a mess. And she doesn't realize that she's not alone. Eli, the priest, we read in verse 9, he's sitting on the seat beside the doorpost. This is God's representative of mercy. At this time in the people of Israel's life, this would be the human leader. This is a good thing, right? The priest is there. My prayer is heard in the temple. And yet Eli sees her mumbling mouth and this priest thinks she is drunk. Under, I mean, his eye is so out of focus, he does not even recognize a burdened prayer of pain. In the book of Isaiah, we're told that the house of God is to be a house of prayer. It appears that Eli is more familiar with it being a house of drunkenness at this time. Let me show you how sad this is. I think Eli conveys to this woman the opposite of compassion. Let me show you where I see that in the passage. In verse 15 and 16, look where Hannah, how Hannah responds. After she, he says, put away your drink, you drunkard. She says to him, no, no, I have not drunk wine nor strong drink. I have been pouring my soul out to the Lord. Do not regard me as a worthless woman. Do you understand that somehow this broken woman, after interacting with the priest, God's representative of mercy, walked away from that experience feeling that God's view of her through this priest was that she was worthless. This is how dark it is for Hannah. A priest who we'll see in two sermons from now, in chapter two, he does not even care about the ridiculous wickedness of his own sons inside the temple, is going to leave this praying broken woman with a sense that she's worthless and wicked. This is a travesty. I have sat with some of you, and I've certainly felt it in my own life, people who've gone through pain. And as AJ preached last week, then they talk to others and stupid falls out of the other people's mouth who are trying to comfort them. Or they talk to others and they're actually taunted. And at the end of that journey, I know people whose pain has convinced them that they're worthless. It's awful. That's where this story starts. In all her pain, she turned to God the only way she knew how and the only place she knew to go. And God's representative met her with a sense of condemnation and worthlessness. This is the priesthood at this time for the people of God. 
So let's talk about the interweaving of the individual and the, the cultural. Hannah is barren. All of Israel is barren. That we need to see. Why? Because there is effectively at this time no priest. But it's worse than that. And here's where this will be like a little introduction to the whole rest of the book. The book of 1 Samuel comes in the twilight of the era of Judges. When Samuel the prophet is raised up, he's the gap man after the judges before the king, the, uh, the kingdom would start. And we read at the very end of the book of Judges, chapter 21, verse 25, in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So there's no priest. What does the last verse of the book of Judges say? There's no king. And we'll look in chapter 3 when young Samuel, the boy, is in the temple. And remember, God speaks to him at night. And he doesn't know it's God speaking to him. If you read chapter 3, and I'd encourage you to skim it the way chapter 3 starts and ends, the Bible will tell us that the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. There's no prophet. No one's speaking God's word. So where are we in the middle of the history of the people of Israel? There's no prophet. There's no priest. There's no king. It is barren and it is dark. Well, Eli realizes that Hannah is not drunk. He realizes that she is praying. He realizes that she is devout. And he says to her, go in peace. The God of Israel grant your request. Literally in Hebrew, translating it, literally, the God of Israel grants you your asking that you have asked. He's growing in awareness of how desperate this woman's requests are. And then in verse 18 to 20, it's rather beautiful. We have this description of small acts of obedience and worship, don't we? Hannah goes away and she eats. And her face is no longer sad. They rise the next morning as a family. They go to worship. Then they go home. And then Elkanah knew his wife and the Lord remembered her. And Hannah conceived and bore a son. She called his name Samuel, which sounds like asked of the Lord, but it actually means the Lord has heard. Okay, so we're going to go back to the beginning. Did you notice any hints of something far greater than just Hannah being given what she asked for in the form of a son named Samuel? I think there's two hints of where the story's going to go and bigger things at that. One is obvious, one's a little bit obscure, and you probably need to know Hebrew. So the first hint how does this book inform us that we are to think of God? Did you notice the first mention of who God is in verse 3, as well as the first mention of God in Hannah's first prayer in verse 11, is the Lord of hosts. This is the title that this book wants the reader to have. Lord of hosts, Lord Sabaoth, if you've ever sung that. This is a title that will be used more than 260 times in the whole Bible, and these are the first uses of it in all of the Bible. What does it mean? Well, Lord of hosts could mean Lord of armies. Maybe you've heard it described as such, a God who is militant and mighty. He has all the armies at his disposal. But you know what else it could mean? Lord of plenty. The Lord of much. The Lord of numberless, abundant blessings. He's the Lord of hosts, the Lord of no limit. That's the first big hint. This story that we're about to study for the next months is 
about God the king who's the master and ruler of plenty. He gives and he gives and he gives and he gives. And if anybody turns to him through any human agency that he has not ordained, that's not pointing them back to him, any other savior will leave you empty, but not the Lord of hosts. He gives and he gives and he gives. Second hint of hope in verse 20, Hannah calls her son's name Samuel, for the Lord has heard. And she says, I have asked for him from the Lord. The, the Hebrew word for ask is used seven times in this chapter. You know what it is? See if you can hear if I say it. I'm not good at speaking Hebrew. Shaal. It's the same word from which we get the, the word Saul. The king that the people are going to ask for. In chapter 8, the king who's going to leave them empty. The king that when Samuel is the prophet, Samuel says, Okay, God's going to grant your ask, the Saul that you brought, and he's going to give you Saul the king. But if you and your king won't turn to God, the true king, who's the Lord of hosts, your king, the one you asked for, is going to leave you empty. He will take everything from you and leave you barren and bankrupt, and empty. But not Hannah's king. See, she saw all of the Lord for a rescue because she knew he was the king. And how does God in all the story of redemption most visibly address the barrenness of individuals like Hannah as well as people who are barren in our sin and death? How did God answer the ask you see hints of another son in this story? Another son who was asked for? A son who would be born in Bethlehem Ephrathah, as Micah 5 verse 2 prophesied. Here we start our story, and there's a certain man named Elkanah. He's an Ephrathite. Jesus, the son of man, when he was born, when he was the son that was asked for, did he not from his earliest days serve in the temple? Was he not devoted to his father from the very beginning in a way that young Samuel couldn't compare? Was his whole life not devoted to his father? Was Jesus this other son, the one that was asked for ultimately not the prophet who'd be greater than Samuel, the priest who'd be greater than Eli, and the only king who'd be greater than Saul, and even of David that we'll meet middle of this book who had a Heart for God the King. And did Jesus not in his cross and resurrection reveal to us that he had all the, the angels and the armies of God at his disposal when he conquered death? Is he not the Lord of hosts that came in the form of a servant when he was resurrected and conquered sin's worst affect? In Jesus, has God not given us plentiful forgiveness. Maggie is our high school senior and she had to write some essays for scholarships and other things. And I was editing her essay and I said, Maggie, I think you need to go back and just look at some, I think what you're saying is beautiful, but where would you root it in scripture? Something far more authoritative than what you feel or what your parents would say, like where would you find it? Middle of the week last week, she texted me and she said, oh my gosh, dad, Romans 5 verse 20 is the best verse in the Bible. 
where sin increased, grace abounds and abounds and abounds in numberless eternal ways. You can't sin in such a way that the grace of God cannot cover it because your king is the Lord of hosts. And when he came in the flesh, he gives plenteous and plenty, is that a word? Plentiful mercy and grace and forgiveness. So here's how we'll wrap up. If that's your king and that's my king and we're like Hannah, let me ask you, what do you spend your days asking for? What do you saw all of God? Do you ask him for individual and for global cultural things? Like, do you ask him, your Lord of hosts, to help you understand what your deepest need of rescue is? And you ask him, and you ask him, and you ask him. Right? We read in 2 Corinthians that God promises those who have the Spirit in us that we will be transformed and renewed, even though our outer self wastes away, the inner self will be renewed day by day. Do you ask for that? Day by day, renewal from one degree of glory to another, because he's a God who says, I will give what you could never manufacture. But we don't want to just ask for ourselves. Do you ask for things bigger than you? In a culture where there's so much pain and distress? And that's why we read in our service earlier from Revelation 21. Do you ask for God to usher in a kingdom when there's no more tears, no more weeping, no more sickness, no more death, no more fear, no more anxiety, no more who reject God and sin is no more and this earth is the new heavens and new earth that God comes and sets up his kingdom on forever and we are at peace. Do you go individual and cultural in your ask of God over and over? We ought be like Hannah. And what about the people in your life? What are they asking for? The people you work with, the people maybe that report to you at work, the people that live in your street, the people that are on the sidelines of your sports team, what are they asking for? And do you realize that when they reveal to you what they're asking for, it's never just individual, it's interwoven with a need that's far beyond what they feel in the moment. You and I are called to be exiles and sojourners and we go to coffee shops and we go to restaurants and we're at school and we're at work. What is the dominant vibe that your life sends to others with frequency such that they sense what you are most desperate for? Is it the Lord of hosts to give you the rescue you pine after? Or is it sports or girls or vaccines or government incompetence or money or your wants and your needs and your calendar and your schedule? What would others say they think you're asking for? We're called to be evangelists of the Lord of hosts. And the dominant message that must come from the church in this world is through our own desperation. And it's that the Lord of hosts knows every need of every individual in every place and time and tribe and tongue. And that the Lord of hosts chose in his good providence from eternity to come in the flesh and bring his son, Jesus, who'd be the prophet and the priest and the king who would reverse everything and every individual who repents of their pride who ask for things that will leave them empty. 
Every individual that would turn to him will understand that he's far greater than just an individual savior. He actually, through Jesus, is ushering in a kingdom with global transformation. And yes, every disease will one day go away and every nation will bow the knee to the king. And simultaneously, individual stories of barrenness and bankruptcy, as well as global, national, continental stories of barrenness will cease. Be desperate for that. Let's be desperate for that. Be known for hope in that. And I would challenge you over the course of this series to minimally change your address to God in your prayers minimally. And would that all of us would start our prayers morning, day, and night with Lord of hosts. Let's pray now. Lord of hosts, we just ask that the desperation individually that we feel, that even this story of barrenness connects to in different ways. When we think of ways in which we have sought after things that would leave us empty, earthly saviors, wives who look to their husband and their husband's like an Elkanah and he can't address the disappointment, doesn't know what to do. Would we look not to our family members and not to cultural swings in geopolitical ways? Would we look to you, the Lord of hosts, and all of your promises? And would we be desperate for you to bring into fullness what you've begun in Jesus, our prophet, our priest, our king, and your son. This is our prayer. This is our request. And we thank you that as we turn to the Lord's Supper now, you have given us full, full understanding that he conquered sin and death. He is the Lord of hosts in the flesh, the king of armies. He's also the one through whom we experience plentiful forgiveness and grace and mercy. And so would we take the Lord's Supper now for those of us who profess faith in your name without shame, with no guilt, with full hope because of what you have promised you will accomplish through your King. This is our prayer in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.